together to think about God's design, both generally today and next week when it comes to sexual ethics. So next week we'll think about fleeing from sexual immorality, and today we want to think about a foundational text, Genesis 2, and and the way in, in which God made us in his image. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we confess our need to you again, and Lord, we We pray that you would meet us now in that need. Lord, we pray that you would permit me to preach, to hold Jesus faithfully and truthfully with my words, and God, that you would allow all of us to embrace your word. God, we pray that you would lead us and convince us and convict us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you... Didn't know what a car was, and you happened to stumble upon a Toyota Camry in a field, and you began to ask you and your partner who's with you, What do you do with something like this? You start to walk around and kick it, and you think, Well, we could hold classrooms in it. And so you invite your grade school class, second grade class that you've been teaching, to come, and you're going to meet inside because this has cool air that blows out of the front. Once the kids are packed in and you're trying to stand on the hood and speak in there, you would probably second guess that. Perhaps you take it and you put it on train tracks and you start to see it rumble. It's moving. It's going. We've figured out that it rolls and it it goes in directions, but it doesn't seem to work just right on a train track. That again would make you question, what is this for? Perhaps it has, you you, you find some square blocks close by and you say, well, what if we change the tires out and we put these blocks on and see what happens? Now, if you had a manual that you could pull out of the glove box and open up that told you what this is, how it operates, and how to make use of it, well, that would change everything. And that's what we have with the Bible and us as human beings, as men and women made in God's image. We are a carefully constructed, beautifully designed, very capable, uh, intricate creation of God with purpose. And we have a manual that tells us what that's all about. And here in Genesis 2, we have one of the most foundational passages in all the Bible. (laughs) It's a foundational passage that answers many questions that our society is currently fighting and raging over. What is it to be a man? What is it to be a woman? What is it to be a human? What is it to be made in God's image? All the things that our culture is fighting over at the heart of all of those things is the question, what is God's design? And if you're not going to embrace God's design, well, what is this for? As I said, this is a foundational text for the biggest, big questions of life. And they don't really get any bigger than this. So, I just want to help you and prepare you now to be disappointed. Uh, This is likely to raise more questions than it answers. You're going to leave here this morning wishing I had said a hundred other things. And that I had talked about this verse and that verse and gone into great detail about how to apply that. But we've only got a limited time. So what we need to do is take what we can 
and get handles, as it were, on this topic, which if we can grab those instead of worrying about all the questions we have first, but instead asking what are the handles that God gives us on these subjects, then from those handles we can begin to make progress in the questions that we might have that come from that. Now, I will say this. If you and I reject God's design, if God has a design for life, for humanity, for you and for me, for our families, for your sexuality, for your personhood and identity, if he has a design for that, well, if you reject that, you still have to replace it. Kind of like the silly example of trying to figure out what the Camry's for. You, you, you have to make the car move or do something. It's designed for something, and you have to insert your own design. And if you try to reject it, you have to recognize that you're probably still borrowing much of your understanding of life and meaning and human value and more from the Bible without accepting its truthfulness, which is inconsistent at best. What I'm, what, what I'm trying to say is like if, if, if you want to live as a human in this world and you don't want to throw everything out, you have to borrow elements that God has taught us that come from God as the creator and the designer in order to live uh, and function in this world. But that's inconsistent. And I want to call you to consider that and to perhaps become more consistent. But probably there's more going on in your heart than maybe you ha- you've considered. Probably you're experiencing what Paul describes as the suppression of truth in Romans 1 so that you can order your life as you please rather than as God has designed. All of us have that impulse. All of us. From the moment we're little kids and we're told, don't do this, do that, and your first thought is, I really want to do that. The, the, the desire to push against and to push the boundaries is there, and we all face that. If what we find here in Genesis 2 is foundational then it has vast implications for humanity. But also, if you reject what you find here, then that has vast implications for you and for humanity. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, before we get to chapter 2, which is our passage, we read this report, that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. Whether or not you join God in his assessment will determine the direction of your entire life. Whether or not you join God in his assessment of his creation and his design will determine the direction of your entire life. And as you keep reading in the scriptures, I think you will find that it determines the direction of your eternity as well. If you take notes today, here's the the main thing that I'm praying that we would grasp and walk away with a greater desire for. And it's this, that we would follow God's design with your life. Follow God's design with your life. We'll think about that in a couple of ways. The first one is, I, let's, let's, let's recall and think about that you were created for God. You weren't created for yourself, you were created for God. That's number one. That's really context. It'll be a little bit shorter. The second thing is that God made man with purpose. You were made for God, but you were also made 
with purpose. There's a design. There's an intent. There's something driving God when he makes us. So God made man with purpose. And then the third thing is that God beautifully designed us as male and female. God beautifully designed us as male and female. That'll be verses 18 to 25. Let's think about how you and I were created for God. Created for God. The most basic truth in these first two chapters is that we did not arrive on this planet by accident through millions of years of chance or any other thing. No alien terrestrial group has planted us on this earth. No no scheme of some vast empire that has a higher intelligence and lives somewhere else in the universe. No, we have arrived here by God's creation. But the earth and everything in the cosmos was created by a personal creator is the loud, screaming, basic truth of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis and therefore is foundational to everything that you and I will learn in all of the Bible. And he did it with care and purpose. Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He, made, he established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Whether looking at nature or looking at chapter 1, it's easy to see that this earth was intricately designed for life. We've talked about that for, before in other other sermons, and we've, you think about that every time you look at National Geographic. It's an amazing world we live in. And it was clearly designed to support life that is so fragile. We are, in, cosmically speaking, on the verge of death at every moment. And yet, here we are. Springtime and harvest, morning and night, it continues to roll on, and here we live on this planet designed for life. But specifically, the earth was created to support human life. The crown of Genesis 1, of the Genesis 1 creation account is the creation of mankind in the image of God. All of the creation account is moving towards the moment when God will form man and place him on there. Now, there's more after that that I'll talk about in just a minute. But think about this and just cast your eye on chapter 1, verse 26. In the midst of his creation, he says, it says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. We're going to think about what some of that means as we continue through chapter 2 here. But many have pointed out that it is only after this that God says that things are very good. The assessment in chapter 1, verse 31, that comes that, that his creation is very good, comes after He has finally now made man, and he's made man in his image, male and female. 
And of course, this concludes the creation part, but there's a few more verses that are left over that guide us further into God's purposes. This is still context, chapter 1. And this chapter 1 comes to a conclusion. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested. On the seventh day from all his work that he had done, God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. God has made in six days all that exists, and he's set it up so that it will live and thrive and reproduce and move forward. But all of that is then capstoned by a seventh day, a day of worship. A day when his creation should reflect the way he has made it and then he rested. And the people that make up his image bearers on the earth would also enter into that rest and worship God one day out of seven and rest in him. So all of these, this contextual background lead us to see three very important things in chapter one that we need to have in mind when we go to chapter two. We need to realize and remember that mankind was made in God's image as male and female. We also need to remember that mankind was tasked with two grand callings. These are together known as the cultural mandate. Number one is to be fruitful and multiply. That man and woman in his image would be fruitful and multiply. And that they, number two, that they would have dominion upon the earth. That they would exercise the rule of God on the earth as his image bearers. In his place. And then the third thing is that worship is at the heart of everything we do. That's why the chapter one creation is capstoned with a seventh day of worship when God and man would meet together in in perfect harmony and praise to the Lord. Genesis 2 is going to fill out these things for us that chapter one only prepares us for. But this has huge implications for following God's design. First, all humanity is connected to God. Whatever we conclude about the meaning of the image of God, only people are made in God's image. Nothing else. This is a distinctive that vastly sets us apart from the rest of creation and the animals. Wherever we go in life, we go as image bearers, representing, reflecting, and exercising this inescapable trait. Every person you interact with bears the image of God and reflects God to you as you reflect God to that person in every encounter you have. At a, a trait that is no doubt marred by sin, but it's present anyway. The second big implication is that our purpose, our work, and our worship are all linked. Our purpose and our work and our worship, they're all linked. These aren't segmented categories of our life as, as how some of us tend to live. Some of us tend to sort of uh, siphon off work over here. Church is here. Family is here. And then perhaps we search for some sort of larger meaning or identity or some sort of defining characteristic about ourselves. As if all of these things are, are different. But what Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are telling us is that these things all come together as one working together uh, one, one, multiple entities working together to glorify God and to bring him glory the way that he designed us to. And then the last thing is that worship is primary. 
And this is just what I was saying before. What you do with God's design will determine the direction of your life. Because the way you and I live is our worship. You don't have to be conscious of that. You don't have to direct it to God in your mind, in your heart to be worship. But it will be. Because we take our cues from somewhere. We are all submitting to ideas. We're all submitting to a design of some sort. The question is, is whether or not that design that you and I submit to is the design that we should submit to. Okay, so that's the context. God made you and I for himself. But God also made us with a purpose. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it to rain on the land, but there was no man to work the ground. But a mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. Verse 4 begins a concentrated narrative about the specifics of man's creation. It's not a second creation account. Sometimes that's asked or that's uh, sort of um, challenged to, to this account. It's, it's not a second creation account that's just sort of haphazardly been stuck next to chapter 1. But rather, it's a detailed description about our beginnings. Verse 4 is a heading, and it's a heading that's used all through Genesis 11 times, actually. You'll see an example of this in chapter 5, verse 1, where the, the, the generations of Adam, Adam's descendants, are going to be described. And in chapter 6, verse 9, and chapter 10, verse 1, you have Noah and his descendants described. And that's the way this heading is used throughout. Whenever you see this heading, so here it's translated, these are the records of the heavens, or sometimes it'll say the records of the family or the generations of it's referring to sort of the, the, the progeny of the one who's mentioned first. So with, in chapter 5, verse 1, it's Adam and all the kids and people that are going to come from him until the next big person that we need to think about in the book of Genesis. Now you'll notice here that there's no, there's no person, no human person mentioned as the source of everything that comes here. It's the Lord God. The Lord God is in verse 4. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That's who makes mankind. That's who Adam comes from. This is telling us that all of us and the first people came from God in a special creation. And this chapter is going to come from that idea. Or or is going to unpack that for us. And the whole thing is devoted to the special creation of this first man and this first woman. Whereas Adam's children come from him and Noah's from him, in the beginning, everything came directly from the Lord God. Even Luke picks this up when in his genealogy of Jesus, you'll remember in Luke chapter 3, verse 38, maybe you read it at Christmas this this past year, it concludes, you go all the way down the genealogy, and the last line of the genealogy says, Seth, son of Adam, son of God. If you just cast your eye to chapter 5, Verses 1 through 3, you'll see the same emphasis here. Notice what it says there. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The account of chapter 2, then, is focused on the special creation of the first man and the first woman. No other part of creation gets this kind of attention, which alone tells you something of God and his intentions and our purpose. So if you just let that sink in for just a moment, there's, there's a lot of description in chapter 1. There's a beautiful poetic description of the creation of all things, but there's not a lot of detail of any of them. How God created, the, the extent and, and the ways in which things were created when they first formed is, is not told. But in chapter 2, you get, you get this elaborated description of what we only get a couple of verses in, in chapter 1. Verse 5, at first, appears to be taking us back to Genesis 1 with some sort of different chronology. But it's actually taking us forward to the creation of a special place, the Garden of Eden. This is seen by the fact that in verse 8, it says that God planted a garden in Eden. Notice what it says there. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a curated place made special for Adam. If earth itself was formed to be inhabited, if it was placed at just the right axis point, in just the right location, with just the right rotation and, and spin around, uh, rotation around the sun, if, if all of that was done to support life itself, the Garden of Eden was created as a special home for man to live in. The earth itself was formed to be inhabited. Eden was formed for Adam to dwell with God, the crowning of his creation in his presence. God is being depicted as a gardener, who takes a space of undeveloped land cultivated to improve the raw materials he created in chapter 1. So essentially what we have is chapter 1 is is the formation of the early earth. And here in chapter 2, there's a a plot of land that is sort of reserved for this garden. At at the time of of, of verse 8, we we haven't, or verse 5, sorry, we haven't actually seen it created yet. But that's the setting that man is made in and sort of set to the side, as it were. Kind of like, here, I'm going to make man, you sit right here while I create a special abode for you. That's what we see going on here. This garden was, a, was special, not, not just because God made it. Of course, that's got to be amazing. But because it was planted in the form of a temple. Now, you and I might not recognize this immediately. We're reading at a, at, a, at a disadvantage from all these years removed from the ancient Near East. But to the original readers, all the elements of a temple are right here in this passage. In verse 10, a river flows out of Eden to water the whole place. Whenever a king in the ancient Near East, and you'll see this in the Bible with Solomon and David and others, when they would build elaborate Places when they had the time, when they weren't fighting wars, they built palaces, and right next to the palace, they always made an elaborate garden. Always. And the garden and the palace were always connected to the temple. 
Because these things work together. The king rules on behalf of God. And under his benevolent rule, under the benevolent rule of God, the the kingdom will flourish. And the garden is a picture of that flourishing as God rules through his king and blesses all the people. Here is this early place, this early location on the earth when God is carefully gardening and curating and making this elaborate, beautiful place. And a river is running through it to make it fertile and flourish. Now, rivers flow downhill. And from verse 10, we see that it's flowing down and out of this area, indicating that this garden was placed in an elevated area like a high plain or a mountain, always the place you put a palace and a temple. You remember God is said to rule from Mount Zion. He meets Moses on Mount Sinai. The gods are worshipped as they are brought to high places. All of that Idolatry throughout the world is echoing these early realities when God made an elevated garden temple to dwell with, with Adam. Not only is all of that there, but raw, uh, rare minerals and gems along with gold are found there with lush vegetation. That's the picture. It's a picture of a temple. But most of all, God himself is placing his image in it. Verse 8, look at that again. He says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. So he doesn't just make the earth and put man on it to roam about. But he carefully curates a garden and carefully fashions man and then places this man in that garden with designed purpose. Now, this is not just background information to set the scene. James Montgomery Boyce said it well when he, when he said all the details about the garden are here because of their relationship to the man. You'll notice in verses 5 to 7, they seem to indicate Adam was created before the garden itself. The garden is the intended place for man to dwell and to carry out his work. Something that's really important to realize, man is going to be put to a task. But his task is supposed to be fulfilled in the temple. Adam wasn't an afterthought, but rather a forethought. All of us who come from Adam, all these years removed, we too are not afterthoughts. We're not accidents. We're carefully designed, purposefully made, placed descendants of this Adam with the same kind of purpose that he was created for. Following God's design means realizing you were made to commune with God in his temple. That's what you and I were made for. That's, that's foundational to our lives. And if you, if you and I wrestle with the design that God gives us in any area of life, whether we're talking about work or parenting or marriage or sexuality or identity or, or, or politics or, or, or living out in the world in any other way, we are first and foremost to see ourselves in a relationship with God as someone who is to worship him and live for him by his design. Verse 7 describes the special creation of Adam out of the ground. It's, it's a really beautiful and profound verse that I wish I had words to capture. It's a beautiful verse that's packed with the breath that it describes. Look at it again. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being being. 
That is amazing. Let your mind meditate on that truth. There's a play on words that Victor Hamilton pointed out where Adam's name is formed on the word for ground. Adam is Adam's name or the word for man. And the word for ground is Adamah. So perhaps in English it would sound something like God formed the earthling from the earth. There's an intricate connection between what comes out of the ground and what is formed now on the ground. The verb here that's used for forming is, is one that's used of craftsmen who forms his art carefully. Oftentimes of a potter who's carefully shaping and molding a cup or a bowl as it's spinning to produce a useful utensil that he's going to then cast in the fire and make it strong and set to work. Like a potter, the Lord God, it says, formed the man. So he doesn't just grab up some dirt and sort of mash it together. (laughs) But he, he carefully shapes it. He forms it into the man. Again, Boyce said, the profundity of this verse is that it describes man as a combination of what is low and what is high. What is low and what is high. You're talking about someone who's a pile of dirt, a real dirt bag, (laughs) which speaks to the lowness of our creation, of what we are. But this, this dirt bag is formed into the image of God. And think again in verse 7. This, this, this pile of dirt is formed up, and then it says, the breath of life is breathed into the nostrils, and the man becomes living. And all that it is to be in the image of God enters him. People often try to calculate the value of a human. I remember as a kid hearing that we are worth like six bucks or something. It appears that inflation has also affected that. So I guess that's good. Of course, it depends on how you slice it. But one website reported that on the level of basic chemical components, we still aren't worth a lot, though. Uh, Your body contains $7.12 worth of phosphorus, $5.95 worth of potassium, and about four bucks worth of a dozen other substances for a grand total of $17.18. Now think about it, that that captures the lowness of just what we are. What what are we? Not much in that regard. Now, if you slice it the other way, the complex parts of your body, as designed by God, are worth a whole lot more. Lungs are worth something like $58,000 a piece. Your heart will fetch somewhere around $58,000. I'm not sure why that's $1,000 less than one lung, but. And your kidneys are good for another 91400 bucks. Add all of that up with body fluids, DNA, and bone marrow, and the number jumps somewhere to close to $45 million. Now, I would suggest that you don't try to cash in <laughs> on that. You, you won't be able to enjoy a penny. Raw materials aren't worth much. But what makes people of value is the breath of life that breathed into the fashion dust of the ground into the image of God. That's what makes us valuable. The breath of life breathed from God into a pile of dirt that becomes a living being. 
It's amazing. This moment, if you can go there in your mind, is really profound. The instant when the first man's eyes opened to light and his lungs captured that first breath with all the intentionality and purpose for which God made him. Captured in this remarkable phrase, and the man becomes a living being. Now, it's worth pointing out that everything about this narrative, while it sounds mythical, has all the markings of being anti-mythical. Or to put it the way C.S. Lewis put it to his friend Tolkien, this is the true myth. The one from which all myths derive their ideas. That is, it's similar enough to be linked with the varied creation stories of the world, but distinctly narrated to counter them. Man is made with loving care. He's not the offspring of a vicious fight where the blood is is splattered from the sea monster. Man is intentionally created. Earth is not just a, a planet that happens to be, but it's a place formed to put man on. He's made in peace and not in war. No conflict. Rather than being enslaved to the gods or an an annoyance to the gods, he's made for communion and purpose and dwelling. And all of human society flows out of the things that we read here. The earth itself is made for his habitation and a special temple garden was his designed home where as the image of God, he would move about In God's temple. Now he's also given a purpose to work the garden. You see that there in verse 5. First it's alluded to there where he says, the the text says that uh, no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Man was needed for the purposes for which God made the earth. Not because God needs us as though he needs something, But he needs us in the sense that he has a purpose. He has a design, and he's making us to set us into that task. Yet even here, work is not presented as an unwelcome task. Instead, it's a holy honor. Verse 15 unpacks it a little bit more when you read there. Just cast your eye over to verse 15, and you'll see the same phrase again that God places him there. The Lord took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Work has the sense of cultivation in this garden context. Just as God took a space and curated a temple garden, Adam is to work it in the same kind of way. So as to continue the garden and to watch over it so as to protect it. Your translation may say keep it, to uh, work it and to keep it. That word keep is the word for guard or to watch or to keep. It has all of those senses. And the idea is to protect it. To, to, to be sort of its defender, to be, to be someone who takes responsibility for it. His task is to watch over, uh, his task to watch over would include guarding it from any unexpected threats, but in particular, he was to watch over it as an expression of his moral character. That's why you see, uh, for the second time mentioned in this passage, this, this idea of this tree being there. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Man is to have his character developed 
in a moral uh, exercise of continually obeying the Lord. God places a tree there. Now, lots of people, you and I are not, not exempt from this, ask, well, why would you put the tree there at all? It seems like that's the way to ruin the whole thing. But only in hindsight, from our standpoint. But even that has purpose. God, as, as he makes this man in his image, he is to grow up. He is to mature. And his ethical character is to mature as he resists temptation, as he obeys God, and as he teaches his children that are going to come later, that they too must resist temptation and obey God. And as he resists temptation and obeys God, the moral character and fortitude of God himself will be shaped in the man who images God. It's there with a very specific intentional purpose and probably more than what any of us can think of. This was something to be developed as he instructed those who came after him. And all of this is getting at the mandate in chapter 1. Remember, we introduced that, that God designed us for himself. He, he made you for him. Well, he gives that mandate to have dominion and to be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply, he says, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Adam's task was to follow in his father's footsteps to cultivate the habitation of man with God and what was to become a worldwide temple garden filled with image bearers like Adam. So people sometimes ask, well, what would have happened if Adam hadn't sinned? And I can't, and no, no one can tell you exactly, but it does seem from the text that the, the at least expressed intent leads you to believe that if Adam and Eve had not failed in chapter 3, that the expansion of their work would be to continually cultivate and continually work out the garden as it takes over all of the creation. And as they have more children, these children would come along and join them in this work and join them in the happy service and worship of God as it covers the whole earth. Now, you may recognize that that's the echoes of the prophetic hope. That what is promised throughout the Bible as you go through the prophets and the Psalms and look towards the latter part of the Bible in the book of Revelation, that the knowledge of God and the glory of God is going to cover all the earth. It's the same mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve in that early day. So his work to, to, to tend the garden, to cultivate, to protect it, to exercise his moral character. All of this was to follow in his footsteps and see the expansion of God's beautiful garden. There's so much to say here that we just can't take time to say. But following God's design means understanding yourself to be something that's both low and high. You, as you sit, where you are, by name, are something low and high at the same time. We are merely creatures. That's all we are. And in, in, when it comes to us and sort of challenging God, we stand no chance. But in wonder of wonders, we're made with careful beauty, careful design, tremendous value. And it expands in all directions. What is low is our simple creatureliness. Merely dust, entirely dependent, responsible to God, what is high is the incredible value God breathed into each of us as persons, capable, rational, moral, conscious beings with the purpose of relational communion with God and others. 
And I can't unpack this, but I'll just throw this out and you can, you can chew on it. But this is also what should shape the way you approach work. The kind of career you think about, the kind of work you do, the way you work, where you work. All of this should fill that up for us. Following God's design is recognizing this truth and letting it call you forth into his happy service. But we also need to recognize that God beautifully designed us as male and female. That's the third thing that we need to think about under this idea of following God's design. Obviously, Adam wasn't able to be able to do all that God commanded by himself. So that's why God designed, beautifully designed us as male and female. Look with me there in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. For the first time, something is said to be not good. It's not good that the man is alone. And all the ladies, of course, gave a hearty, I know that's right. Adam's calling is something he is unable, literally unable to fulfill without a helper that's suited to him. Now, the language here is really instructive. We can form and should form our ideas of what it is to be a man and a woman based upon the description of the creation of the first man and the first woman here in this passage, along with the rest of the Bible that sort of unpacks those things. When mankind was first introduced in Genesis 127, we, they were introduced as a unit. In fact, man there is actually mankind, but it's the word Adam. But it's then broken into two parts, male and female. A plurality of oneness. And that simple description lays out both sameness and difference. Sameness and difference. And both are important. Both have to be kept in mind when we talk about male-female distinctives. And all cultures are inclined to emphasize one over the other and fall off the cliff, as it were. Ours is a culture that overly majors on the sameness, or at least tries to. Now, we shouldn't assume a psychological reading here when it says that it's not good that he's alone. Our, our, we've been so psychologized, our first thought is something like, oh, he must be lonely. But if companionship is a primary need, and certainly it is a need, but if it's a primary need, then God was able to fulfill this need himself. God himself is a triune being. He is relational in his essence, in his existence, existing as one God and three persons. God himself did not need to create in order to have relationship, but he is relationship in his essence. And when he makes man, certainly man can commune with God and have a relationship with him. It's a profound reality. But something more is what's in mind. Adam is unable to carry out the mandate that is given in chapter 1. This is why he needs someone who corresponds to him. Or if you have an ESV translation, it'll say a helper fit for him or suitable to him. And you see it repeated two times, verse 18 and again in verse 20. Literally, this phrase means a counterpart. And it highlights the need for someone both like him and different from him. He doesn't just need a partner. He needs someone as his counter. Literally, it means a counterpart. Now, 
What this means is made clear in the events that follow. Adam works with God in what must have been a very intricate task in naming all the animals that God made. Look there in verse 19. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. This is the first act of exercising the dominion that God called him to do on God's behalf. Naming the animals was an expression of his authority over them. And again, as we say this as often as we can, when you hear authority, you can't hear it in the context that we live in as something meant to oppress the animals. Adam's naming the animals is not an attempt to hurt them. Adam's naming the animals is, a, is, a, is part of his cultivating work to exercise the good, benevolent rule of God as his image bearer on the earth. He's naming the animals as part of God's garden extension. No, Genesis 2 context is the way we need to understand these things. And this was God's intention for Adam to extend the benevolent rule of God from the garden temple. And so the same thing is happening uh, when he names Eve, when she is brought to him later. It's in this process that Adam learns that there's no counterpart to him among the animals of the earth. Interestingly, God seems to parade all of the animals as if it were he was standing next to Adam to see what he would name them, but also to see if he recognizes he's the only one without a counter. The animals are made male and female, and they are able to reproduce. He, they also have the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Adam has that mandate, but he can't do it because he doesn't have a counterpart. The need is repeated in verse 20. So what does it mean to have a helper corresponding to him? Well, verse 21 gives us an insight to that. Look at what it says. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 21 says God took from him a rib. This is the traditional translation of this word, and he fashioned it into a woman. This word, translated rib, however, is the word for side throughout the the entire Old Testament. It's used predominantly in temple architecture language, which would match, right? If Genesis 2 and the garden are describing a temple, it would make sense that you have temple architecture in that temple. And the word that's used here for side, or translated rib sometimes here, is the same word you have for like the side of the Ark of the Covenant, or the side of one of the chambers of the temple, or the side of a hill in other places. This is indicating that from Adam, from this one creation out of the ground, God took half of him, as it were, to make the other half. Two halves of one whole. And it should probably be translated as side because God is placing his temple architecture of his image in the temple. The woman is not made from the ground in the same way that the man is. In fact, this is the only ancient Near Eastern creation account where the other people are made not from the ground like the first man is, but made from the man. 
Indicating that she is not an independent, competing uh, human, but she's part of him. She's part of the oneness that makes up the image of God and is divided into male and female, into two genders that's made to complement and correspond to one another. A beautiful description of the way that we are made. It's important that God did not make her separate from Adam, from the ground as a separate independent person, but from Adam in a relationship with him. This is part of what it means to be his counterpart. She's like him in many ways. And her task corresponds to him as well. She's called to be his helper, which is not a derogatory term at all. It means to fill what is lacking. Now think about when you need help. You never think to yourself... Boy, I wish I had some derogatory help. Or I wish I had some weak help. Nobody thinks that. When you think of help, you think of strength. You think of life. You think of something that is going to pick you up, fill up what's lacking, and help you get on. That's what a helper is. It means to fill up what is lacking. To be a helper is not weakness assisting, but strength filling What is needed. God is called Israel's helper on many occasions. God is a great helper. And it's in her complementary difference that her help comes. Not by being the same as Adam, but by being different from Adam. By being a female, she is able to bring a corresponding lack of Adam to Adam in order to complement him and help him in all the ways that he needs. Women are supplied with the sameness of humanity and image-bearing that makes Adam special and the special endowment to bear and raise the children they will produce. And she adds what is lacking to fulfill the mandate. And this, these two callings, this primary work calling of Adam to cultivate like a gardener in, in the field and this primary calling of helper, counterpart to Adam to help and bring along children into the earth is reflected in the callings of manhood and womanhood. And it's reflected in the anatomy that we share in our bodies. Our bodies are designed to reflect the design of maleness and femaleness in the corresponding complementarity that God designed in the oneness of the image of God. I know that's a mouthful, but it's another way to say that the sameness and the difference are valuable, are to be prized and cherished and leaned into. No man should not want to be a man. And no woman should ultimately not want to be a woman because of a sense that, that manhood or womanhood is something gross or something that, that we shouldn't desire. But it's a design that God gives that we should lean into. And if we struggle with that, we should, we should look into God's design so that we might discover the goodness that's there. Adam and Eve are to do this together as a complementary pair wedded together. When God brings Eve and Adam, uh, when he brings Eve to Adam, it's a nuptial ceremony. Everything here is essentially a marriage ceremony. And this exclamation is akin, the exclamation that he shouts out is akin to wedding vows in verse 23 when he says, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. 
he makes his wedding vows there. And in his wedding vows, he expresses, he acknowledges the reality that she has come from him and she belongs to him as a corresponding unit. But he also expresses what happens in marriage as, as two become one flesh and they are joined together and they form a family, a unit that is able to have children and bear, bear image bearers into the world fulfilling the mandate of chapter 1. Mankind was virtually created a family in that the first human pair was created not just male and female, but husband and wife. Now we have to land this plane. And so I want to try to make just a couple of applications in, 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 our, in our conclusion. There are lots of things to think about. Most of them we don't have time for. We'll come back and next week we'll pick up, especially the idea of fleeing sexual immorality and what God wants for us there. While not everyone needs to be married, not everyone will be married, the creation of Adam and Eve in marriage covenant teaches us that the family is the foundational social relationship for the world. All of society is built on this reality. This This is where God begins creation. This is where society begins and finds its, its calling and its, and its trajectory into the world as we venture out from the garden. The family, like Adam, is not made for itself, though. The family has a calling in fulfilling the mandate of God's glory covering the face of the earth. And as such, our family should reflect the goals of creation to worship God. Exercise an affectionate dominion through our homes and, the good, and to the good of the world. And to raise up children for safety, in safety for the next generation. And since the family is so important, all other institutions should exist and function to protect and promote the prosperity of the family. All of us should work to that end. All of our, all of our efforts in, in an institutional public life should be ultimately to secure the family and, and make sure that the family as the bedrock of a society is thriving. Our laws should reflect this. Men and women are made in relationship to one another. This will often look like similarity, but it's in the differences that we complement one another. Men and women make up mankind and together image God. These differences should be celebrated, embraced, and lived out. Differences are not deficits, Patrick Schreiner writes. It's better to think of these as true differences, not in the sense of comparison, but in the sense of fittingness. Each sex will inflect strengths differently. One is not better than the other. They're simply different in corresponding ways. And this is appropriate, and it's beautiful. Sexual ethics are formed on the design that we see here in this foundational text. God made two genders. God did not make a plurality of humans, but only two. And this tells us that one marriage partner of the opposite gender is God's design and his standard. Only these two genders can come together and to bring the two sides of Adam back together in a biological union that produces children to be fruitful and multiply. Sex is the one flesh union of verse 24 that's mentioned. And it's the biological union of two halves, procreative in type and monogamous in application. That's what we see taught in Genesis 2 and explained and extrapolated as you continue throughout the rest of the Bible. Now let me just say this and bring this, bring this to where we need to go. For the one struggling to follow God's design in your gender, 
there is, there is much to say. More than I can say right now with you, I would, I would be happy to talk with you afterwards. On the one hand, we should not be surprised to see this as a reality in our world after the fall. We're, 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 we're body and soul. We're a whole being. And the, the fall, the, the effects of sin, affects all of us. And what I mean is by all of us is all parts of us. Sin affects all parts of the world, including the inner workings of a man's heart. But this never gives us justification to lean into the impulses that resist God's design. The goodness of what God has for you is never found in an alternative self-authorship or in autonomy. To follow Jesus in this way will require great humility and strength that God supplies. It will also require an openness to the church and vice versa that allows you to both struggle and to speak into your life and to call you out of your desires and call you into God's design. You need to know that eat, that such struggles with identity and gender will not be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. Where this world is headed is to a place that does not struggle with sin. And so your particular sin struggles will be done away with as well in that day. God will wipe away all gender struggles as he will wipe away all our tears. So strive towards God's calling in your gender. This beautiful description of the creation of man begins with God breathing on the breath of life onto him. And that description goes all the way through the Bible as Jesus himself breathes the Spirit on his disciples as a symbol of what happens in the new birth. When you and I hear of God's good plan to sacrifice his own son where Jesus took on humanity and experienced all the temptations and the trials and the pressures of trying to live as a man in this world, and yet did so according to God's design perfectly. And in spite of that, died a death that you and I deserve for not living according to his design in all kinds of ways. But God accepted this payment for sin so that sinners could be redeemed and brought to him if you and I will just simply turn and trust yourself to Jesus and ask him to change you and conform you into his design. And that's exactly what he does for everyone that comes to him in repentance and faith. We are conformed to the image of Jesus. That is the process of being a Christian throughout the rest of your life. So the design that you see at the beginning is the design that is being restored in our relationship with Jesus. Hallelujah. So church, follow God's design with your life. Created for God, made with purpose, beautifully designed as male and female. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth. These beautiful descriptions. And this incredible purpose. God, we pray you would fill us up and lead us to lean into that. In Jesus' name, amen.